CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. on November 21st, 2020. Welcome to the Evidence Room Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Roeder. And today we're going to be talking about the JFK assassination. And joining me today is my friend and trusted colleague, Mr. Jay Thomas, coming from the Evidence Room in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, how's it going, Scott? Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, I was dying to have you on the podcast for a very special episode. As you know, tomorrow is November 22nd, and that's, uh, you know, not exactly a, a landmark anniversary, but it's an anniversary of, of a very important day in American history. Absolutely. I, I think that a lot of people, uh, even our age... <laughs> Know, uh, know that date, and uh, it's a sad date, but it's still a date that kind of stays with you. It is really, you know, an incredible thing to me, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, even to this day, 57 years later, is still kind of shrouded in disinformation. And in preparation for this podcast today, I did some research, watched some documentaries, read some articles. Uh, and, uh, I, have learned so much about Cuba, Fidel Castro, John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald and all this stuff. Uh, and I just felt like it was just important to readdress the issues. You know, I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1970. Um, and, you know, I think even for my generation, you know, JFK and his assassination, you know, I think we just everybody accepted the Warren Commission's general prevailing theory. If you're not a you know a, a, a historian, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman and killed John F. Kennedy. Isn't that generally what the government's opinion still is today? I think so, and it's ironic because uh, you know even even now, believe it or not, in, in doing my own research on this, uh, President Trump was given an opportunity to clear some of the documentation because that was one of the things that he had said. You know, he's going to clean up all these conspiracies, et cetera. And ironically, even with all of his rhetoric, he still held on to some 3,000 documents 60 years later, which leads me to believe that there's a lot of stuff out there that people don't know about still. 
I would agree with you. You know, I watched the um, documentary, well, not documentary, the, the movie, JFK, by one of my favorite American filmmakers and what I would call American historians, Oliver Stone. And in the closing argument made by um, uh, Kevin Costner's character at the end during the jury trial of Clay Shaw, he says, I'm marking the calendar for the year 2032, because that's when the U.S. government will officially declassify documents related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I thought that was fascinating. So we're now in the year 2020. So you and I will live to the day when these documents will be forced by the archive, government, whatever, you know, that rules that thing to declassify all that. So let's see, I'm 50 now. So I'll be 62 years old when that stuff gets declassified. I can't wait for it, honestly. I have my own theory, though, and I'm sure you have your own theory, but let's dive right into it, Jay. Um, I think to, for the kids today to understand, when I say kids, I mean people between the age of, say, I don't know, t 10 years old that might be listening to this podcast, all the way up to, um, you know, maybe 30. They might not you know, grew up, grown up with the pop culture of the Kennedy assassination that's kind of revolved around it. It's been kind of made fun of, taken lightly to the point where, you know, even on Seinfeld, there's a famous episode uh, where somebody spits gum at Keith Hernandez walking into a Mets baseball game and it goes back and to the left. Remember that? The hilarious scene where Kramer gets hit in the head with the gum or <laughs> the spit. Um, but, but it's a serious matter. Um, and I think it, it has a direct relationship to what's going on in today's world, you know, with the transition between the Biden presidency and the Trump presidency. Kennedy was in a very similar situation. And just a quick setup, and I'm going to let you take over because I know you got a lot to say on the subject. So Eisenhower had hatched a plan in kind of the lame duck session of his presidency to invade Cuba through kind of a CIA proxy war where they um, uh, enlisted and trained 1,334 Cuban dissidents who were pissed off, for lack of better words, for losing all their wealth and power that they had under President Bautista, a friend of the United States, when pa Castro came to power um, in 1959. And uh, the United States wanted to have their own person that they could control as the president of Cuba again, not Fidel Castro, who at the time was not even a communist. So Kennedy wasn't briefed by Nixon because when Nixon's running for president, he was so confident he was going to win. He didn't brief John F. Kennedy or the government didn't brief John F. Kennedy, the president elect potentially of any of the security situations going on in the world. So as a result, when Kennedy won, it was kind of a surprise and Kennedy had no idea that the government was planning to invade Cuba. And that's kind of one of the inherent risks of not cooperating with an incoming president-elect during the transition period, which I kind of feel like maybe there's some bullshit brewing in our country right now. I don't want to get political. Uh, I think that's about as much as I'll go with, with the politics part of it. But it's hard to avoid politics when talking about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, 
I think that it's interesting, you know, that politics, although they change, they don't really change, if that makes any sense. I mean, if you look through history, look through assassination attempts or, you know, successes, you know, look at, you know, the Lincoln assassination. I mean, that was like a conspiracy on a whole other level that people don't really talk about. You know, the Lincoln was supposed to be assassinated, but so was the uh, vice president and the uh, majority house leader. You know, the, you don't really hear about that in history just because it's like a side note because it wasn't successful. But when you think about it, I mean, you know, whenever there's an attempt, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of insane. You know, it, it's like one of those things where a lot of people get together and pull it off. You know, that you'd look at, uh, say, John Hinckley. Uh, you know, he tries to assassinate Reagan, doesn't really get away with it, doesn't even uh, succeed. Uh, you know, you look at Oswald and he had a lot of the same characteristics as Hinckley, but uh, he managed to pull it off. It just seems very unlikely that a, a madman or a, just a wingnut, basically, was able to succeed at something like that without so, being assisted by someone. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally dig, dig it. I mean, but did Lee Harvey Oswald have something to do with it? Probably. He probably did. And, you know, I want to rely upon my area of expertise to evaluate this. Now, we can talk, you know, for a while about the politics of it. But just for a second, let's get into the and we're going to get back to the politics because I have a lot more to say and talk to you about on this. But let's look at the, the actual assassination itself. And I think it's very simple uh, when you break it down. And in preparation for this podcast, I created a little video. I went out yesterday with one of my other colleagues, Patrick Mooney. Um, Patrick Kyle Mooney. Kyle. Patrick Kyle Mooney. Um, he, he's also uh, one of my colleagues here at the Evidence Room. And um, he's a, a shooting aficionado, as I am. And we took a, a triple action bolt rifle out to my sister's farm. Uh, shout out to my sister, Kim. And we did an experimentation. And I posted that experimentation on the Evidence Room YouTube page. So I encourage everybody, pause the podcast, go over to YouTube, type in Evidence Room YouTube page, and then look for the JFK video. It's about two minutes and 50 seconds long. And it's my kind of you know, real fast attempt at uh, reconstructing what I think are critical elements of the shooting scene reconstruction um, that really, I think, proves beyond any reasonable scientific doubt that there had to be more than one shooter that day at 12.30 in the afternoon, beautiful sunny day in Dallas, Texas, November the 22nd, 1963. Now, there's no doubt that John F. Kennedy was shot from behind, as evidenced in frame uh, 301 of the Zapruder film, 301 to 306, something like that. Because you can see Kennedy raise his arms as if to protect his neck because a bullet just hit him. And then you could see Connolly in front of him turn around and also react as if he was shot. Uh, and then on frame 313. As a matter of fact, there's a famous documentary called 313, and it's about frame 313 of the Zapruder film. And uh, it clearly shows that John F. Kennedy was shot from the front right side of his head. He has an entrance wound. A big piece of his skull fractures, and you see this plume 
of red blood. And then you see his head go back and to the left. Now, as a shooting scene reconstruction expert like myself, that's pretty easy to digest because I've been reconstructing homicides, particularly by gunfire, for 25 years now, testifying in courts all across this great land of ours and in many foreign countries. I'm no stranger to this. So to me, I look at it, I'm like, how can the Warren Commission say that there was a lone gunman? The scientific evidence alone proves beyond any reasonable doubt that there had to be at least two shooters. Would you agree with me, Jay? Absolutely. And, you know, to further the opinion, I mean, you know, that even the Warren Commission had analyzed some of that audio to say, hey, you know, there is a potential of up to six shots that they captured with some of this audio. And so, you know, it, it finally boils down to a, a story that certain players decided to get together and, and formulate to, to say, hey, don't believe what your eyes see. Don't believe what your ears see or hear. You know, believe what I'm telling you. And unfortunately, the American people, after being told the same story over and over and over again, finally started to digest it and believe it. So are you saying that disinformation works, Jay? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think it's a famous quote from Napoleon. Uh, he said, um, history is just a story that a bunch of people get together and believe that's what happened. Not necessarily the facts, but just a version of the facts. I'm going to do you up one better and say uh, a quote from uh, Winston Churchill. And he said, history is written by the winners. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, that's true. Um, now, we can't talk about the JFK assassination without talking about Cuba. and. I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know all that much about Cuba's history. And um, it all started in 1492 when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> uh, you know, he landed in the America, apparently, but no, he landed in Cuba. That's where Christopher Columbus landed, in Cuba. And ever since 1492, the Cuban people have been enslaved. And then starting in 1850-ish, Cuba was in a period of an 80-year period of absolute revolution after coup d'etat, after revolution, after coup d'etat, after revolution, again and again and again. These people have been... Uh, through, I think, uh, of any country, I mean, especially a country that's 90 miles off our southern coast, uh, could ever, you know, uh, imagine that kind of turmoil. Uh, matter of fact, uh, you know, if you look back uh, during the most normalized uh, relationship between the United States and Cuba, it, it goes back into the Great Depression era, uh, during the era of prohibition. Um, guys like Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, um, uh, Ernest Hemingway spent a lot of their time in Cuba. Matter of fact, Ernest Hemingway's book, The Old Man in the Sea, was written in Cuba based on Ernest Hemingway's experience of living amongst the Cuban fishermen. And Cuba was 
universally regarded as a vacation paradise destination and really remained that way up until Castro's revolution of 1959. And Castro really fucked up the relationship for the United States when he overthrew Batista. This is actually shown, if you remember, I don't know if you're a fan of uh, The Godfather, Jay. Of course, that was that. That was you know that was the extent of the knowledge that I had of the Cuban Revolution at first was that scene in The Godfather, where Michael Corleone and uh, uh, Fredo, yeah, they're trying to negotiate the uh, the casino deals, and then Batista is thrown out of power and everybody scrambles. I mean, that was that was such a pivotal scene, not only in The Godfather but kind of like in Cuba's history, which is ironic because. You know, it was one of those things where it was just like, holy cow, you know, overnight revolutionaries came in and flipped the table and said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to do something entirely different. And so it was just one of those things where I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting as a side note. And then you just kind of move on. But I think you're right. I think the Cuban history is one that is fraught with, uh, with, you know, turmoil and abuse and you know, people just trying to get what they can get out of the, the poor Cuban people, honestly. Um, and, but, you know, and, and, and that was on uh, uh, New Year's Eve, 1959, was the revolution when Castro officially uh, took power. Uh, and, and that was also the same time Kennedy was becoming president of the United States. So pretty incredible kind of circumstance. So Kennedy and Castro came to power essentially almost at the exact time. And when Castro came to power, it was the revolution to end all revolutions. And still today is the last revolution in Cuba. Um, And uh, that really started an escalation in tensions uh, because of course, the failed Bay of Pigs disaster. And by any, you know, assessment, Cuba won the Bay of Pigs, as uh, President Trump likes to say, bigly, big league. <laughs> won big league, big time. Cuba kicked the ass of these dissidents. Now, Cuba lost some people, too. They lost 4,000 people. Uh, but they were able to capture and or kill all of the Brigade 2506. And then later, sell them back. Kennedy for $53 million, thereby cementing Castro's uh, power and his influence uh, to the point where Castro then goes to the Soviet Union uh, and is treated as a hero. He's given a baby bear, which is really cute, and um, comes back to Cuba uh, really that cemented his reign for life in Cuba, but that didn't end there. Um, the CIA and through John F. Ken- John F. Kennedy after this event was obsessed with killing Fidel Castro. According to what I've researched, John F. Kennedy and the CIA attempted to assassinate Fidel Castro over 70 times through, uh, Mafia hits to the point where the CIA paid the mafia $5 million to go into Cuba and kill Castro. Mafia, of course, did what the mafia does. They took the money and they didn't even try to kill Castro. 
Um, they enlisted the help of one of Castro's ex-girlfriends, who was living in New York City at the time, to go over to Cuba with poison pills with cyanide in them and go up to Castro because he was living at the Hotel Nacion uh, Hilton and under heavy guard. And, uh, and this was like 1961, early 1962. And she went up there and she hid the, 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 the cyanide pills uh, in like her Pond's makeup cream. And um, she started crying and Castro said, are you here to kill me? And she said, yes. And uh, she dumped the cyanide pills down the toilet. And Castro said, well, then kill me. And he takes out his gun and he gives it to her and says, kill me. And she's like, I can't. I love you. And then Castro made love to her. They ate food. And she left. So Castro was fucking the United States effort to kill him literally over and over and over and over again. And the Bay of Figs was just the first victory in a long line of Castro victories. So, um, it, you know, one, and then there was a speech that Castro gave on the radio because he was a master of media. And he said, uh, listen, um, the United States has tried to kill me. I'm paraphrasing. The United States has tried to kill me many, many times. And then Castro warned Kennedy that it goes both ways. And that was in late 1962. At the same time, the United States signed an embargo, basically isolating Castro from everybody in the entire world with the exception of Russia. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that uh, some of those papers that just got released by the CIA had talked about how they dusted his clothes with bacteria. Um, the exploding cigar story that a lot of people have heard is a real story. Um, they tried to make his hair fall out, uh, his beard oh, hair fall wait, out. Wait, wait, wait. The exploding cigar story? I think I saw that on Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. Yeah, no, that's that's an honest-to-God real story that came out in some of the CIA documentation that they they actually tried to slip him an exploding cigar, which is insane. Um, they tried uh, putting arsenic on the mouthpiece of the cigars. That didn't work. Uh, I guess the bacteria was supposed to make him lame, like uh, take him to a point of almost dying, but not quite dying because they weren't sure at one point if they wanted him dead or if they just wanted to illegitimatize him, make him seem really weak. At one point, they had put out contracts on all of his leaders but purposely said, if you kill Castro, it's worth two cents because they wanted to incense him into a, you know, a, a rage just to kind of goad him into doing something stupid because, you know, and nothing else was working. They'd poke at him and he'd do nothing and they'd try and kill him and it wouldn't work. And so they were trying all these different angles, trying to get him either upset or just to get the people themselves to kind of overthrow him. You know, they... They tried to starve the uh, the Cuban people out, too, to try and get them to revolt against uh, Castro, which is horrible if you think about it. You know, you're torturing millions of people because you don't like their leader. So, Yeah, and uh, I wanted to read a few quotes about what the world leaders at the time were saying about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, right? Um, so let's uh, go with uh, Robert Kennedy, okay? Robert Kennedy said, there's so much bitterness, I thought they would get one of us. But Jack, after all he'd been through, never worried about it. And this was an interview that RFK gave on the afternoon 
that JFK was assassinated. Um, Edward Kennedy, senator and brother of JFK, says there has to be more to it when being asked about did Lee Harvey Oswald assassinate him. Lyndon Johnson said, I'll tell you something about Kennedy's murder that will rock you. Kennedy was trying to get Castro, but Castro got him first. Huh. He'd have us to believe, wouldn't it? Now, I think that the evidence might support the idea that John F. Kennedy was perceived as being soft on communism. Um, and he needed to be eliminated. And if you think about who was assassinated after JFK, MLK, RFK, Malcolm X, all considered to be either communist sympathetic or communist uh, neutral, you know, uh, by the CIA and the FBI and J. Fucking Edgar Hoover. Um, a couple more quotes um, by Ken O'Donnell, former special assistant to JFK. Quote, I told the FBI that I heard two shots coming from behind the grassy knoll fence, but they said it couldn't have happened that way, and I must have been imagining things. So I testified the way they wanted me to. I just didn't want to stir up any more pain or trouble for the Kennedy family. And this guy was um, uh, went on to become uh, assistant to uh, Tiff O'Neill. Okay, this is not uh, a fly-by-night guy. Uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, former assistant attorney general, said, "My own feeling was that Bobby was worried that there might be some conspiracy, and that it might be his fault." It might very well have been that he was worried that the investigation would somehow point back to him. I'm not as certain as one could be that there was no other gunshot, but it's silliness to speculate that somebody was behind Oswald. I'd almost bet on the anti-Castro Cubans. So even at the time, these are quotes from 1963 in the very... Um, uh, uh, the near after uh, 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 history. Dick Goodwin, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, said, we know the CIA was involved and the Mafia. We all know that. And if you think about motives, which any good crime scene investigator would think about, think about who benefited or who had motives to kill John F. Kennedy. Let's look at, say, the most obvious, um, Fidel Castro, right? Um, he had been, Kennedy had tried to overthrow him in part, uh, but his administration tried to assassinate him dozens and dozens of times. They said 75 times almost attempted assassination. So Castro had much uh, reason to revenge, right? Um, as a matter of fact, on November 20 and November 21, 1963, 24 and 48 hours before Kennedy's assassination, Kennedy had sent French journalists who was set to meet with Castro to Cuba to interview Castro. And he was there and testifies uh, in this documentary I saw of Cuba Libre that Castro 
picked up the phone, heard the news that Kennedy was shot, and said, oh, this is serious. They're going to blame me. Uh, so that's Castro. One of the other uh, uh, main suspects would be the mafia. Because the mafia, during the uh, Prohibition period, uh, considered Cuba to be their El Dorado, their city of gold, headed up by Meyer Lansky. Yeah, you know, honestly, too, the the mafia angle, uh, it's kind of interesting because in doing some of this research, I found out that, you know, Joe Kennedy had some very shady dealings with a lot of different people, including the mafia. And it was believed at one time that Joe Kennedy had reached out to certain mafia officials to get his son elected to, I think it was the Senate seat or possibly even the presidency. And I think that the mafia felt cheated. I think that they put this guy into some form of power, and then all of a sudden, not only is he trying to do away with their own organization, but Robert Kennedy is also making moves trying to get rid of the mafia. And so at one point, the Chicago, the New Orleans, and the uh, Miami trying to take credit for the assassination. So it's, it's interesting that you bring up the mafia, because I think that there are a lot of different areas that, that the mafia kind of rings true. You know, it's it's a, an organization. I think that uh, obviously they're shady already, and you know they've got the ties to make it happen. And there's a great quote by, excuse me, pause. All right, I'm going to cut that out. One, two, three. There's a great quote by Meyer Lansky, who said, "We're not leaders of the underworld. We're leaders of the overworld, demonstrating how much power." That the mafia had during that time period. Matter of fact, the United States government enlisted the help of the mafia during World War II, where they actually let Lucky Luciano out of prison, where he was sentenced for life for murder, because he was able to convince the La Cosa Nostra members who controlled the docks in New York City to watch out for Nazi spies coming in as Italian immigrants during World War II. And uh, the government made good on their promise and uh, let him get out of jail. For, and uh, he ended up fleeing to where? Cuba! Where he attempted to, you know, implement all of the gambling and, you know, turning Cuba essentially into Las Vegas. So, considering Cuba was the mafia's El Dorado, uh, and Castro being in power prevents that El Dorado from happening. And by Kennedy totally failing at the Bay of Pigs by not providing air cover, and instead of landing in Trinidad, they land in the Bay of Pigs, which was so stupid because landing in the Bay of Pigs, they the boats that they came in on from Nicaragua actually ended up being a shipwreck because... They didn't realize that in the Bay of Pigs, the bay in the shallow water was protected by coral reef. Whereas in Trinidad, they could have just parked the boats with the flat bottoms right on a beachhead. But they landed in the Bay of Pigs. And they didn't realize that all the shallow water was protected by coral reef. So these guys, the Brigade 2506, had to walk through 200 yards of shallow water protected by coral reef. And I don't know if you've ever been to like Hawaii or 
Mexico or any area where there's like really thick coral reef, you can't walk on it. It rips you to shreds. Imagine what that was doing to these guys uh, in the brigade trying to, you know, keep their rifles dry and walk over this jagged coral, you know. So it was doomed from the beginning. So, of course, the CIA who coordinated that overthrow, I'm sure they were fucking pissed off that they failed. So they had, you know, because their goal was to eradicate communism, right? The CIA, the military, they, they were just afraid of communism. And Kennedy even said through his French journalist, just a day before he was killed, that he didn't care that Cuba was aligned with the Soviet Union. Of course, he was not a communist himself, but he had nothing against the communist people. He just didn't want to have war. And that was further evidence of how soft, allegedly, he was on Cuba. And um, so I think the CIA and other people um, who, you know, I mean, think about it. That period of time, there was a purging in Hollywood of... Uh, you know, the guys like uh, Truman Capote and all these Hollywood writers who were members of the Communist Party who made all the great movies in the 50s and the 60s who were arrested and put in jail for suspected of being communist. This was a time when, um, you know, McCarthyism was running wild. Uh, people were being accused of being commies, the Red Scare. I mean, this even filtrated into Bugs Bunny cartoons and, you know, the propaganda machine about how bad the communists were. And listen, I'm no fucking communist. But... Um, I'm saying that um, there was a reason for these anti-communists to want people like JFK, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X. There's a reason they wanted them dead because they were a threat in their fight against communism. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, uh, you know, especially nowadays, people that are kind of in their 20s and 30s, they grew up in a culture which was very accepting of alternate ideas. You know, they didn't believe necessarily in communism or other religions or what have you, but it was never one of those things where well, I'm going to punch you in the face because I don't like the fact that you're a communist. You know, back in the 50s, you know, uh, if you were red, you were dead. That was one of the phrases that they they had uttered over and over again. You know, if if you were an American, that was your religion. You know, you you fought very hard to be American, to keep America, keep America great, to use a, a, uh, <laughs> a recent motto. And, uh, you know, back in the 60s, if they thought that uh, the United States was in danger of, you know, being overthrown by communists, to your point, I think that, you know, people had a tendency to take physical action against stuff like that. You know, and I wouldn't put it past a lot of people in that time and era to say, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that our our great nation stays safe. And so if that means that the president's got to go, then he's got to go. And, you know, when you look back at all of those political leaders you know, in the in a span of a few years, if you think about it, how many of those political leaders were assassinated, all coincidentally by lone gunmen? It's kind of a strange thing to think about. Oh yeah, you know, MLK, he was shot to death by some lone gunman. Up, oh, JFK, he got shot by some lone gunman. Up, oh, Malcolm X, some lone gunman. You know, RFK, some lone lone gunman. I mean, you know, you're not going to change your strategy if it keeps working for you. So, and think you know, about it. Just to go on to that point, Oswald was killed by a lone gunman, by Jack yep. Ruby. Uh, an admitted mafia uh, member uh, killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, you know, 
the Red Scare didn't end there, Jay. I, uh, I think the Red Scare continued all up even into my lifetime, into the mid-80s, as evidenced by one of my favorite Red Scare movies of all time. And I'll give you a quote. Gotta let it turn. Gotta let it turn. Let it turn into something else. Wolverine! <laughs> Red Dawn, baby. Yeah, man. Union and Cuba invade the United States. What a propaganda movie. Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, uh, you know, the Russian military and the Cuban military invade the United States and a group of Michigan football players defend our great nation. Kind of like what Michigan is doing right now. <laughs> from threats, foreign and domestic, folks. Domestic Paris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Don. Uh, that was like mid-80s, man. Like right, right around the same time that Breakfast Club came out. <laughs> you know, like... Um, yeah, it was the war alternative to a John Hughes movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, by the way, I love John Hughes, Pretty in Pink, all that stuff. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Um, uh, it's funny. I, I think uh, Raul Castro kind of looks a little bit like John Hughes. <laughs> I would have <laughs> that little mustache. Um, no offense to either Raul or John, <laughs> yeah, whatever you guys can work it out amongst yourselves. It's just a pencil thin mustache, man. I don't get it. Like, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> but I think to summarize this, um. Uh, what did what did Leah Harvey Oswald say? I'm just a patsy. Now he probably was involved. Maybe he did take a shot or two or three. But as we know, in a sniper situation, that first shot's going to be most accurate, and that was from 240 feet away. And in frame 313, which I will again refer you back to the evidence room uh, YouTube page, the JFK assassination video. I think I pretty clearly demonstrate that the shot came from. The front that ultimately killed Kennedy. What did you, did you see that? Did you watch that video, Jay? What did you think about that? I did. I, I thought it was a fantastic video, actually. And I was going to ask you how many shots did it take you to get it right? Because uh, you know, obviously, you edit it down for time, but um, you nailed it exactly in the position that it needed to be hit at. But somehow, I doubt you know with a World War II era Italian rifle, you nailed that <laughs> at a couple hundred yards right off the bat. Unless you've got some sort of secret talent, you're not telling me about. Uh, no, I missed several times, and uh, but ultimately hit the shot. Um, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, you know, Pat Mooney um, uh, is a much better shot than I am, and him and I have you know had bets over the years on shooting scenes that we've done. Um, uh, uh, matter of fact, there's this one famous case I did uh, the the defense of Molly uh, uh, McKernan, as uh, shown on the. Um, uh, 48 Hours Evidence Room uh, episode, which you can find on CBS.com. Uh, you can look up the Evidence Room episode and then see what I'm talking about. Uh, and where I, I bet Pat, I'm like, hey, Pat, I bet you I can get off uh, 10 shots in uh, under three seconds. I got off in 2.66 seconds. And then, of course, Pat and I were there yesterday. And uh, I'm like, Pat, let's see what you can do. I let him do it first. First shot, uh, nicks it, just misses it. You know, second shot. But then I said, okay, do it three in a row as fast as you can. He hits it on the first shot and misses wildly on shots two and three. And it doesn't take him six seconds. It takes him 17 seconds. Yeah. Right? So in a sniper situation, 
with a triple bolt action. Now, this isn't freaking Call of Duty, folks. This is real life. 240 yards away at a moving target, your first shot is going to be your best shot. Because that's where you're stationary. You've already got the gun locked and loaded. And bow! That's your best shot. Second shot is going to be wildly different. Your target's moving. You've got to do three bolt action. Click, click, eject. Reload down. Re-aim through your scope. Fire. And then again, it's just impossible to get that off in six seconds. As a matter of fact, I think you mentioned you saw a CBS documentary where they had the world's best marksman try it. Yeah, they had uh, they had ten marksmen line up and tried to do the exact same thing with the exact same rifle, same ammunition. Where they set up a, a tower and a uh, a cart with a, a diagram, just trying to make those shots, and only two of them were able to do it in the time and hit the target twice. So two out of ten of the best marksmen in the world managed to make the shots. The other eight couldn't do it, and even the shots themselves, they weren't kill shots. They just happen to hit the papers. So, you know, the likelihood on top of the fact that, you know, there's uh, trajectories to talk about, et cetera, the likelihood that somebody's able to rattle all of this off, you know, by the way, you know, he's never killed somebody before. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, the fact that he hit him the first time. Okay. And then he's like, Nope, you know what? I know I hit him in the neck, but I'm going to go for that headshot anyway, even though the world is going to be after me. I just don't buy it. Yeah, I don't buy it either, man. And by all accounts, um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna differ a little bit with Stanley Kubrick uh, and the movie uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, at the beginning, I don't know if you remember. There's part of the scene in the boot camp training where he's talking about, "Hey, folks, what is uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, and the guy from the Austin uh, Clock Tower shooting have in common?" Uh, they both learned how to shoot in the Marines. In the Marines, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but by all accounts, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was an average marksman while in the Marines. And there's no evidence that he was, you know, boning up on his marksmanship. Although, you know, he was involved in uh, agitating um, in an anti-Castro down in Miami. Um, there's evidence of that. Um, he was definitely politically motivated as an agitator. Uh, but uh, I don't think he could have pulled it off by himself. I mean, this is, think about this. Assassinating the president of the United States takes multi multiple levels of coordination. Um, first of all, he's in an open car <laughs> in an elevated seat with the bulletproof glass windows down, driving at 10 miles an hour on display. And they didn't secure bird's eye positioning along the route with Secret Service. To make yeah, sure you know what they did? I, I was right reading about this. So the Secret Service had showed up to Dallas and figured out that they didn't have enough spotters to cover all the windows of all the buildings that were going to be on the route. So you know what they said? Well, we can't watch all of them. So fuck it. We're not going to watch any of them. Oh. That was That was literally, well, not literally what they said. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but. That's what they said. Oh, we can't cover them all, so we're not going to cover any of them. Because what's the point if we can't cover them all? That's insane. That sounds like bullshit to me. I know. Not only that, but I guess the uh, the route that they took to get to the next uh, the next point was littered with turns to keep the cars at like 10 miles an hour. 
And a lot of people speculate, well, it was a beautiful day. What was the problem? Why did you have to take all of these twists and turns through all these downtown areas? And on top of everything else, if it was Oswald, he had a much better shot, like two minutes prior to him actually taking the shot. Like, I guess he had, there was some other place on the route that would have been a much better shot, a much easier shot for Oswald. And he didn't do it. He, he decided to wait until he was much farther away and driving away from him, which is a harder shot. So right, because you would think that he could have just been, we all know how buildings work, right? They're squares, uh, rectangles, and uh, there's windows in that book depository on all, this, on all four sides. All he would have had to do is go into a window on the same floor, caddy corner, and he would have had a shot of Kennedy coming down before he made the turn with a full frontal right. headshot. But he waits until he makes the turn and starts driving away that he makes the shot. It doesn't make any sense. It's like waiting for your, for your target to get at the maximum distance away before you shoot it. If you want to hit your target, like I, every Thanksgiving, I do clay pigeon shooting with my shotgun. And if you want to win the clay pigeon shooting contest at the annual rotor turkey shoot, which we don't shoot real turkeys, we shoot clay pigeons, you want to be as close to the line where the clay pigeons are being launched so that you can get the clay pigeon on its upcline rather than its apex or its decline. Plus, you know, you have a you'd be first in line to make the shot. And 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 Harvey Oswald, uh, I like to call him Harvey Oswald. I dropped the Lee a long time ago. I just call him Harvey Oswald or you know <laughs> Harvey O, you know, comrade Harvey O. Uh, but Harvey Oswald, um, he waits until he's at the least strategic positioning to shoot Kennedy. It doesn't make sense. Um, it's got to be a coordinated effort. It's a, it, it was a campaign of misdirection, fire from the back, fire from the front. Potentially, there might have been another shooter um, uh, uh, somewhere else. Because uh, Connolly even says that he felt, uh, I think you thought, you found that quote, something Connolly said, he felt like he was shot from a different bullet than the one that hit Kennedy in the neck. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the film, you can tell that he's still holding his hat when, he get, when he's supposedly shot and he's turning around in his chair. If his wrist was shattered, it would have blown it right out of his hand. He wouldn't be holding his hat anymore when he was turning around because he was already shot at that point. Interesting. Yeah, so um, I think, and then also the bullet that was recovered was in perfect tack. It didn't... <laughs> oh. Yeah, it goes through two people and the seat of a car, and it's still perfect. That, there's no way. So... You know, I think, you know, we could do a 20-part series on all the different conspiracies, but as a student of history, and, you know, if you think about it, we live in some of the most tumultuous times, maybe in the history of our country right now. And I think to understand the present, we must all understand the past so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And that's what I just want to remind everybody, listen, don't believe all the shit you read on Facebook and social media and Twitter and Reddit. It's all fucking bullshit, man. It's a disinformation campaign. Don't listen to Fox News or don't just listen to CNN or MSNBC. Go out there and do your own research like Jay and I did about the JFK assassination. Do a deep dive into a subject you care about. Do a deep dive into elections. Do a deep dive into American history or presidential elections or, or whatever you're interested in. But know your history, folks. 
it's important to having an educated perspective about where we are and more importantly, where we're going as a country. Jay? I uh, really want to thank you for participating in this JFK podcast. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, man, it was it was a great time, and uh, you know, let's tackle something else next week. We'll uh, we'll do the uh, Titanic or the Lincoln assassination and solve the world's problems one week at a time. <laughs> there you have it, folks. <laughs> this has been the Evidence Room Podcast, solving the world's mysteries. <laughs> One podcast at a time. I've been your host, Scott Roeder. Special thanks to Jay Thomas. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Tune in next week where, I, got, I don't know, we'll figure out some other major catastrophe and uh, straighten it all out for you. Good night, America. I love you. <laughs> Shut to the heart and you're too late, darling. You need love a bad name. <laughs> Oh,